Hope everybody's doing well. It's bright and early. It's oh dark thirty outside. I want to give a uh, a, a greeting to those who uh, faithfully watch us on the internet. I know I've heard people from uh, California to Haiti. Is those in in between uh, that people tune us in, watch us live, or they go and watch those that have been uh, banked there on our website. But it is neat having you guys here live and in person. And um, I I know I'm always excited to teach God's Word, but especially am I uh, excited this morning. Uh, I didn't get as much sleep last night, but I'm finding that's okay because we get to talk today on the person of Jesus Christ and the atonement, the death of Christ on the cross. And so what a sublime, amazing uh, doctrine we get to teach on this morning. And let me say again, I appreciate you. Uh, you're, you're faithful. You're, it looks like you're, uh, you're going to persevere to the end. We have some persevering saints in here uh, this morning. So uh, some started out with us. They're no longer among us, okay? So, but that's okay. We're not going to say anything negative about them. But I do, do appreciate uh, the 160 that signed up. I appreciate the 60 or 70 that's going to stay, stay with us until the end. Is everybody awake? Yes. Everybody good? All right, good. Come on in. Um, all right, so we're going we're gonna to get started here in just a minute, and then uh, we'll, we'll pray, and then we will pick up where we left off last time about the, uh, the doctrine of Christ, His uh, divinity and His humanity, and how those uh, come together in one person, uh, which, as Grudem says, it's the most amazing, miraculous, and mysterious of all the miracles of the Bible, how the God-man can be fully God and fully man in one person in Jesus of Nazareth. And so we're going to look some more at that. And then we're going to look at the atonement, the atoning sacrificial death of Christ. You know, as I was thinking this morning, I thought, you know, what are some of the benefits of doing what we're doing? Some of you are going, probably going, yeah, why am I here? Tell, tell me again, why did I get up so early this morning? And, and here's one of the benefits, I think. One is... Uh, you draw closer to the Lord because the no, more you know His Word, the more you'll, you'll love Him, you'll draw closer to Him. But secondly, and you may not even catch all this as we walk through this, but God is, is filling your minds with truth. And when there comes a time when you're teaching or a time when you're uh, in an evangelism encounter, let's say with someone uh, who doesn't believe the Bible, I think you're going to be amazed. And in those moments, how the Holy Spirit will bring things back to your attention or back to your mind. So I look at this as a big discipleship time. I'm, no doubt, I am learning far more than you guys are learning. You know how it is when the teacher, he does all the studying and he, he, he learns more? I promise you, I'm learning every week. Dr. Grudem is instructing me very well, and I'm learning. And so um, I just, I, I hope that encourages you that your heart is blessed and your mind is blessed as we worship the Lord in spirit and in truth uh, on the 645 morning. So let me, let me pray for us. Father, we love you so much. We, we bless you. Lord, as I was praying earlier this morning, I want to ask you, the Holy Spirit of God, to make much of the Son this morning. Oh God, may we see Christ for who He is, and may we just appreciate, adore Him, love Him, surrender to Him afresh and anew. Uh, this very day. Thank you, God, for these that are here at Great Hills. Appreciate them, love them. Thank you for their devotion. Thank you, Lord, for their fidelity to the truth of God. Thank you, Lord, for these that are watching online even now as they are in their homes and as some are getting ready for work, some are just there with their Bibles open, ready to study. Thank you, Lord, that we can save these podcasts, Lord, and people can watch and listen at a future date. So we thank you for all the blessings, God, that you give us. We do pray now that you would speak to us, God, powerfully as we go through these lessons, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we are on the doctrine of Christ, uh, number two, the deity of Christ. We looked at titles of deity, attributes of deity last time, and then we looked at the incarnation. And we also looked at some different interpretations of what those two natures in one person, uh, what that looks like. We looked at some more heretical teachings like Apollinarianism, Nestorianism, Monophysitism. And so now at the very end, we're looking at the, coming, uh, the combining of biblical text uh, on Christ's deity and uh, his humanity. Uh, let, let me remind you again on that Chalcedonian Confession of 451, which did a great job of, of just 
wordsmithing and crafting this sublime doctrine. And it goes something like this. The distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union. Okay? But rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person. End of quote. I would translate it this way. Jesus Christ is fully God and he is fully man. Even though he is one entity, one uh, being, if you will, he has two distinct natures, and yet they all come together, or those two come together as, as one. He writes on page 558, one nature does some things that the other nature does not do. And he gives some examples. So let, let me give you some of these examples. These are really interesting. For example, Jesus in his human nature ascended to the Father in heaven, Acts chapter 2, yet Matthew 28, he's with us always. Did y'all catch that? In his humanity, if you will, the, the God-man descend, ascends up into heaven, but yet Jesus said, I am with you always. Where two or three are gathered in my name, I am with you. Another example. He was about 30 years of age in his human nature, Luke 3.23, but yet he's eternal in his divine nature, John chapter 1. Now, both statements are true, are they not? The Bible says, and I read this again last night. I said, does it say in the Bible how old Jesus was? Did you know it does? It literally says in Luke 3.23, now when he was about 30 years of age, he began his uh, public ministry. Jesus became weak and tired in his human nature in Matthew chapter 8.24, and he slept on the boat. But in the same chapter, Matthew chapter 8, he rises up and he calms the storm. Isn't that pretty cool? So you see both. And he's fully man, and yet he's uh, fully, fully God. As a babe in Bethlehem, some people have asked this question, actually. Well, okay, well, when Jesus is a babe in Bethlehem, I mean, surely, yeah, as a babe in Bethlehem, he's upholding the universe by the word of his power. Now, wrap your mind around that. Try to understand that. Okay, um, how to, <laughs> in my notes, I says, is this hard to understand? I said, absolutely. <laughs> and we will not be able to, this side of heaven, or maybe not even in heaven, will we understand because God is past uh, figuring out. In the death of Christ on the cross, think about this with me. Jesus died and his human soul or spirit ascended to the Father, but you cannot say that the divine ever died. You cannot say that Jesus and his deity or the second person of the Godhead actually died. You can't, you can't say that. He did, however, in his deity experience something of what it was like to taste of death, okay, but Jesus' divine nature did not die, yet he did experience death as a whole person. The unity and yet distinction between the two natures helps us understand how, and this is another example, how Jesus can say, and, and, and the Bible can affirm his omniscience in that he says, I know what's in all men. And in some places he actually reads their minds and tells them what they're thinking, and they're like, who told you, you know, what we were thinking? He knows who is going to believe on him and who is not. And yet, in Mark, this interesting passage, 1332, he says, I do not know the time of my coming. So, I, th I think if you keep those in mind, that deity and humanity, and, and they're contained in, in the one person. Grudem says, anything that either nature does, the person of Christ does. Jesus did not say, before Abraham was in my divine nature, I existed. No, <laughs> he just said, even before Abraham was, I, I am. He gives an analogy that, that he tries to, to help explain. Now, remember, Grudem says this is far more difficult for him to understand than the Trinity. I mean, he really is transparent here, and he goes, guys, I'm telling you, there is so much here that I don't understand. In fact, I don't even think I'm going to understand it in heaven because it's just way beyond my mortal mind to comprehend all of these things. And they seem like almost contradictions, but we know they're not because that's just the beauty of this uh, doctrine. So he gives this analogy. He says it's kind of like a runner. I don't know if you've ever run any... Any guy runners in here? Anybody ever run or used to run? Okay. Um, I enjoy running. For Sunday afternoon, for some reason, I just was feeling really good, and I just took off, and I ran about... I did. I ran four miles. And I came back in, and I thought to myself, Self, why in the world would you do that? I mean, you know, my calf muscle, actually, the one I tore, and now it's, it's, it's knotted up to the, to the base of my thigh. And so I've got this knot here this afternoon. I'm going to go and we'll have a wonderful time this afternoon as this doctor rolls this thing out and gets it situated. But, and even though it hurt, I just kept running. 
And, and Grudem says, oh, that's great, because now you're given an illustration of the divine human nature of Jesus. And I'm like, say what? He says, yeah, because there's a part of you going, I can't do this. I, I'm exhausted, especially when I was going up that incline. I'm like, I want to stop. But there's another part of me that says, oh, you can do it and keep going and, and you can't. And Grudem says that's an example of those two natures, if you will, but they're contained in one human body. I know every analogy, illustration, it always breaks down at points. But again, he's trying to help us uh, wrap our minds around something that is pretty amazing. Uh, interesting to note that one of the titles of Jesus says it's a title that reflects his deity, but it actually refers more to his humanity. Let me give you this. In 1 Corinthians 2.8, it says, The Lord of glory was crucified. Okay? The Lord of glory refers more to, would that refer more to his deity or his humanity? It would be more of his deity. The Lord, okay, the name they would give God in the Old Testament, the Lord of glory was crucified, though the deity, the divinity did not die, but certainly the humanity, uh, the physical part of Christ, died. In the incarnation, Jesus remained who he was <clears throat> when he became what, what he was not. Is that not deep for an early morning? In the incarnation, Jesus remained... <clears throat> who he was when he became what he was not. He remained fully divine when he became what he had not been before, and that was a human being. He did not give up any of his deity when he became man, but he did take on humanity that was not his before. And that's a quote from Grudem, and I underlined that, and I thought that was really interesting. Uh, let, let, me, let me say it again. Jesus did not give up any of his deity when he became man. But he did take on humanity that was not his uh, before. And then he says, again, this is the most amazing miracle of the entire Bible. That's what he says. The most amazing miracle of the entire Bible, the eternal Son of God, joined himself to a human nature forever. And this will remain for eternity. I'm quoting him now. For eternity, the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all the universe. So, if you have a hard time understanding this completely, I would just say, you're in good company. You know? I mean, you're, you're, you're among some of the, the, the best and the brightest of, of theologians like uh, Dr., Dr. Grudem. So, this is um, the doctrine of Christ, his humanity, his, his deity. Uh, if you notice, we didn't get into a lot of Jesus' miracles or uh, his teachings, his parables. And that, that's a whole other uh, story. When I say Christology... When I talk about the person and the work of Christ, we're looking more at the personage, okay? The, the, who he is in his ontology, his, the entity of Jesus Christ. Who is he? Fully God, uh, a fully man, okay? Now talking about the works, we're going to go to the atonement. Oh, yes, I've been so excited about talking about this. The atoning uh, work of Christ. And if you're, you have your Christian beliefs books, this is page 72 through 75, and the big systematic theology book, he covers a lot. Page 568 to 607 in the big book. Um, you know, it's interesting. In this book, he, he will give like two or three pages. But in the big book, he'll give like 30 pages. He condenses like 30 or 40 pages into like a paragraph or two at, at times. And later on this morning, I'm going to share with you uh, one, one controversial text. He spends 11 pages de detailing that, explaining that. And so I'm, I'm going to try to condense and coalesce that into just a few paragraphs. Wish me, wish me well. All right, so we're going to study the atonement. And let me give you a couple of definitions of, of the atonement. The first one that Grudem gives is the atonement is the work of Christ did, that he did in his life and death to earn our salvation. Now, a lot of times when we think of the atonement, <clears throat> we think about the work of Jesus when he died on the cross for our sins and Grudem says that's a pretty good definition, but a better holistic definition is this. It's what Jesus did in his life as well as in his death. For if Jesus, all he needed to be was, was perfect, he could have died as a child, he said. But our atonement wouldn't be complete because it was in his obedience to the Father that was part of his atoning sacrifice, okay? Okay. My definition is more the limited one where I, where I just wrote this one uh, last night. Uh, the work of Christ on the cross to make us at one with God. And you've seen that before, the atonement. Take the first few letters, A-T, and then O-N-E, at one. 
God is here, man is here, and Christ dies, and he atones our sins, and he brings the two uh, together. Okay? First uh, John 4.19, we love him because he first loved us. God took the initiative. Here comes God. He's going to rescue us, redeem us. Romans 5.8, God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, what did Christ do? Christ died. Oh, what manner of love the Father has given unto us. 1 John 3, 1, that we should be called, what? The sons uh, and the children uh, of God. And all that's made possible because God Almighty came down in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, and He lived a perfect life. And again, this is Gruden's idea of atonement. He's living this perfect life of obedience to the Father, and then He dies His substitutionary death He takes all of our sins upon him so that you and I can be forgiven and be free. So let's look at the cause of the atonement. Uh, What was the ultimate cause that led the Lord to come and die for the sins of the world? Um, And this is, if you have your outlines there, that should be A, okay? A is the cause of the atonement. There are two prevailing reasons why Jesus came and, and, and lived a perfect life and died a horrible death. And, I, and you've heard this before, but this is very good teaching. When Grudem, he brings it out beautifully. Number one is the love of God. Number two is the justice of God. And you can't, you can't separate them. And Jesus came. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only Son. But you also have to talk about the, the justice of God. And the fact that we are sinners and that we need help. We need somebody to atone us. We need somebody to redeem us. We need somebody to reconcile and, and bring us to the Father because we're sinners. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. And because God's justice had to be paid, the justice of God demanded a sacrifice and in steps Christ. As Romans 3.25 says, God sent Jesus to be the propitiation by his blood. Now, that word... Heliasimon is used four times in the Greek New Testament. I'm going to share more about this in a moment, but I want to go ahead and introduce it to you at the very beginning of this lecture because it's incredibly important. In fact, the Bible actually uses this word propitiation, and you know what it means? It means that in Jesus' death, he takes upon himself the holy wrath of God in our place. How about that? Jesus, the holy, righteous Son of God, takes all the wrath of God for all of our sin that we will ever commit, and he, he pays the penalty. He pays the price for our guilt and for our sin. And so Jesus came because God loves us and because the, the wrath of God had to be propitiated or it had to be appeased, as a word some use, or it had to be uh, satisfied. Uh, propitiation in, in the Believer Study Bible that I use says, and I quote, Boy, this is so good. I'm either going to have to read this twice or I'm going to have to read it real slow to make sure we get this, all right? Propitiation. It is the work of Christ on the cross in which he met the demands of the righteousness of God against sin, okay? Both satisfying the requirements of God's justice and canceling the guilt of man. Whew, that's not strong. And that's why he did all of that. He did. That's why he died, is because he loved us so much, and the justice, the just demands of God had to be met. What does that say about what God thinks about sin? So, we don't take sin near as seriously as God takes it, obviously. I mean, just look at our, us, look at our culture. I mean, we're very flippant, very nonchalant, take it or leave it, sin's not a big deal. But I'm going to go on record and say sin is a big deal to God. And the reason he loved us and the reason he he wanted us as his own, he sent his son to to ransom us, redeem us, rescue us. The necessity of the atonement, okay? Have you ever thought about that God could have chosen to save nobody, just like the angels? How many of the fallen angels sinned and God went out and redeemed them? Not a one. Isn't it pretty amazing that God chose to redeem uh, fallen mankind? out of his love. And in order for Jesus to accomplish God's will for him, and if people were going to get saved and be redeemed and go to heaven, he had to die, okay? That is just basic axiom New Testament Christianity. It's, it is in the heart and the mind. I don't understand this completely. I don't, I don't know that I agree with this. And it doesn't matter, okay? He came. He had to die, 
Okay, that's why he came. He came to give his life as a ransom uh, for us. And, and there's a powerful verse that talks about this. Let me, let me read Matthew 26, uh, 39. We'll bring it up on the screen. And you feel some of the, the angst of Jesus. You feel some of this in his spirit. He went a little farther and he fell on his face and he prayed, Oh, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me nevertheless. Are you with me? Nevertheless, not my will, uh, but your will be done. In Romans 3.23 it says, quote, It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he justifies him who has faith uh, in Jesus. A better sacrifice was required. The blood of bulls and goats and animals and so forth cannot appease, cannot atone, satisfy the righteousness of God. Read the book of Hebrews. Really, that's, that's basically what the book of Hebrews is about. It's about Jesus, our high priest, uh, coming and dying on the cross for our sins, where the blood of all the bulls and the animals and the goats, the Ote- they cannot appease the holy wrath of God. Jesus has to come as the perfect sacrifice. Okay, seize the nature of the atonement. Jesus obeyed the Father, whereas uh, we could not, okay? So he met the requirements of the law that we never could meet, and then he died uh, in our place. Under that, number one, is Christ's obedience uh, for us. Uh, Jesus lived a perfect life, a perfect life of obedience, and in so doing, he earned righteousness for us. And that that is a beautiful component of the atonement that sometimes we don't think about, i.e., that I don't think about. I always push the atonement immediately to the cross, and Grudem kind of says, well, hold on just a second. Let's don't look over uh, 33 years of perfect living. And that was necessary. He had to be that perfect. In order for him to die as the perfect sacrifice, he demonstrated that perfection so that when he gave his life, he gave his life as a perfect lamb of God without blemish, without any spot or sin. He never sinned. We have to be righteous before God. We can't do it on our own, so Jesus comes. Look at Philippians 3, 9. What a great, what a great verse. And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, Paul said. And that's from the law. But that which is through faith in Christ, this is the righteousness which is from God by faith. And I tell you, when you, when you wrap your mind and your heart around this doctrine, it is the, it is the most absolutely exhilarating thing that a mortal man can experience. When Martin Luther was uh, in his Augustinian monastery or his, his uh, little, little place there in Germany, he, I think it was 1516, uh, I think he was born in 1516, so it's a little bit later, 1530s. There, he's in this cell and he's reading the book of Romans and he goes, Jesus was perfect and he was righteous and he died for me so that I could be forgiven, and I can't earn my way to God. He called it his tumor lightness or tumor lateness. It means he was set free like a bird that had been set free out of a cage. Martin Luther used to lay down on the cold, bare floor naked just so that he would beat his body so that he might be able to please God and appease God, knowing he was so sinful. I mean, he's an Augustinian monk, okay, in the Catholic Church, and he is, he is just beating his body. And he said, and then I read Romans chapter 1, the just shall live by faith. You mean I don't, I don't have to earn this? And, and he says, I can't earn this. And he said, and I was born again. He says, I was born again. And then comes the Protestant uh, Reformation. I do know that date. That's, uh, yes, okay, good, good. Oh, Luther's not even in my notes, but I hope uh, I just want to share that uh, with you. He says, uh, Gruden says, moreover, if Jesus had needed only sinlessness and not also a life of perfect obedience. He could have died for us when he was a young child rather than when he was 33 years of age, end of quote. I want you to, I want you to get that. I don't know if that really helps some of you like it really helped me. It helped me have a more holistic uh, New Testament uh, ideal of, of the atonement, okay? Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 3? He says, John, oh, this is so interesting. Uh, when, he, when he baptized Jesus, Jesus said, John, it is fitting for us to fulfill, anybody? All righteousness. This is important. This is part of what I must do. And so baptize me, John. Okay, number two is Christ's sufferings for us. He suffered in body and soul his entire life. Think about that. The perfect Son of God living among us, living in our sin-stained world, 
Jesus uh, was a man acquainted with sorrow and suffering. He, he suffered in body and soul, and it culminated at the cross. He came to a fallen world, suffered for us as he paid the penalty for our sins, though he himself never sinned. However, we know that the greatest agony would be the pain at the cross. He died the most cruel, ignominious, horrible death so that you and I, mercy, so you and I could go to heaven. Oh, what love of God. I think it was Charles Wesley said, and, and, can it, and can it be that thou, my God, would love me so much that you would die for me? Try to wrap my minds around this. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? He left his Father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace. Emptied himself of all but love, and then bled for Adam's race. Mercy. I hope I can get through this next one. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I awoke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. And then it says, and now no condemnation I dread. Uh, Jesus is all in him, and I, and he in me, alive in him, my living head. And clothed in righteousness divine, behold, I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, uh, should die for me? Let's look at the physical aspects or these, uh, the four aspects of Jesus' pain at the cross and, and what, what he endured at the cross for us, not only physically, but in his spirit, emotionally, in the whole gamut of suffering, yes, but also the greater suffering, many people believe, was not the, the physical pain, but it was the, the separation between him and the Father. So let's look at these. Number one, the crucified one would die by suffocation on the cross in a, in a manner that's really hard to verbalize because of how incredibly excruciatingly painful it is. They would be stretched out on the cross, and their arms or their hands would be nailed and also tied, and then their feet would be nailed uh, to, the, to the vertical beam. Uh, most, would, uh, <clears throat> most would die from not being able to breathe. Uh, they would suffocate. And if they didn't die fast enough, then the soldiers would come and do what to them? They'd break their legs because in order to breathe on the cross, you had to, you had to push up, which all that pain now is on your feet. You had to push up just to breathe. And, but if you break their legs, then there's no pushing up. There's no air coming in. There's no air going out. And so when they came to break Jesus' legs, uh, they didn't. They didn't have to. Why? He was already dead to fulfill the prophecy that they did not break his bones. Physical pain and the death of Christ. Number two, the pain of bearing our sin. Uh, he bore all of our guilt. Listen to this. This is really interesting. We know what it is like to have guilt. You know? You do something wrong, and that, that little ding, or that little, oh, you know, I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have done that. You know, and even, even as a non-believer, there's, there's guilt. We, we know what's right. We know what's wrong. But especially as a believer, when we do something that we clearly know we should not have done, that conviction, that, that guilt, and Jesus, he bore all that. Think about this. On the cross, he had never been guilty of anything, and now he's guilty of everything. Right? Because the Bible says, he who knew no sin became what? Became sin for us. And in that moment, that when he's bearing the guilt of the sins of the world, it's in that moment that God the Father turns from God the Son, and that's why Jesus can say, my God, my God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? In that one moment, the Father turns. Isaiah 53, 6 says, The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Mm. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he became a curse for us. Okay? He became, he made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us, 2 Corinthians, and then a curse in Galatians 3. Adam's sins were imputed to us, and God imputed our sins to Christ on the cross. Then God imputes Jesus' righteousness to us. Is that not amazing? Adam 
Adam's sin is imputed to us. Our sins are imputed to Christ on the cross. He pays the price, and then God the Father imputes his righteousness back to us so that we're free and we get to go to heaven. Mercy. What, a, what an amazing thing. Number three, the abandonment factor. Uh, Jesus faced this pain and death alone. All the disciples fled, right? Matthew 26, they all fled. And I know John and some of the women came toward the end when he's about to die on the cross. But in the trial and in the execution and, the, and the, all that leading up to that, everybody fled. And that's when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And number four answers part of that because he bore the wrath of God. Uh, the Father poured out his wrath and fury on Jesus as he bore our sins. And this is the doctrine of propitiation. As he bears the righteousness, or he bears our sins in order that we would be righteous, he appeases uh, the Father's wrath against sin. And I've read these people who really hate us and hate the Bible and hate Christianity, and they really get after us at this point. They accuse God of being... a a child abuser. And they say, how could you worship a God that would punish his son? And, and, and that's child abuse, so that you uh, could be free. Well, you know what? I didn't create the story. I didn't, I didn't write the story. Now, this is God's redemptive story of all stories. Um, the holy history, the Germans call it, the Halgus history, this, this holy history meta-narrative. This is God's ideal. And I don't look at it at all like that. I don't accuse God of doing something unjust or wrong. In fact, it's just the opposite. He's doing something that will set us free forever and forgive us. But if you don't understand the righteousness of God, and then you'll start to accuse God of being, of being doing something that is, that is wrong. Um, Romans 3, 25 and 26, God passes over former sins. Listen, listen to this. This is interesting. Grudem says, God had not simply forgiven sin and forgotten about the punishment, in generations past. He had forgiven sins, but then he stored up his righteous anger against those sins, and at the cross, the fury of all the stored up wrath of God against sin was unleashed on his own son. Wow! Come on now. All the wrath and the anger of God against all the sins of the world are poured out upon his son and that's what we're talking about, this abandonment ideal, this idea of the, of the Son of God bearing uh, our sin. And here's this word, hilasterion, or hilasimos, this idea of propitiation. Now, you've got to get this, guys. I, I'm, I'm serious. If you don't get anything else, you must understand propitiation. Because if you don't, then you're going to get some ideas that are crooked. You're going to get some ideas that are, that are not biblical. And I'm going to share with you four of them, four theories of the atonement. And each one of them has one thing in common. They miss propitiation. And if you miss propitiation, then you're going, to, you're going to misunderstand what Christ really did. Okay, Propitiation. He takes the wrath of God. He appeases the holy wrath of God on our behalf. Okay, So important. This word, uh, propitiation, is used in Hebrews 2.17, 1 John 2.2, 2, 1 John 4.10. Okay? This is the heart, Grudem says, of the doctrine of the atonement. End of quote. Let me say it again. This is the heart of the doctrine of the atonement. All right. Mm. Even in his hour of separation, he knew that he was doing the Father's will, and he was paying the price for our sins, and he was confident uh, that he would rise in, in the midst of all this suffering on the cross. Um. Grudem says, when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was saying, why must this suffering go on so long? Oh, God, my God, will you bring it to an end? And remember in John 19, uh, 30, when tetelestai, the Greek word there, it means uh, it is finished. Did you notice on, on the cross, Jesus did not say, I am finished? Did you notice that? He said, it. Somebody help me. What does that pronoun, it, refer to when he says, it, it? is finished. What, what, what is that? All of it. All the whole redemption, the whole process, the, you know, the perfect life, the sacrifice, all the obedience, all the fulfillment of, of the prophecies, everything in that one word, it is now finished. I think it was last night and I got home about 8 o'clock and I, I got my notes out and, and I started going over the, these materials and 
And it's like God was giving me some, some more material, so I get to share it with y'all this, this morning. Remember this song? Oh, goodness. We sing it a lot here, Brother Terry, and I love it. It's one of my favorites by Keith Getty, In Christ Alone. Y'all know this? Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was what? Propitiation. Okay? Remember that. Please remember that. The wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on Him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live in Christ alone. Let me say it again. The wrath of God was satisfied in Jesus' death. And again, that is what propitiation is all about. It's going to be so cool. I'm going to see you guys in the church in the days and months and years ahead. I'm going to walk up to you and say, what's propitiation? You're going to say, got it. I know what that means. That means the wrath of God was satisfied in the death of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to pat you on the head and say, God bless you. You weren't asleep that morning. All right, D is further understanding of the atonement. Let's look just at some more understandings of the atonement. How God the Father required that the penalty of sin be paid, and God the Son steps in and says, I will take that upon me. I will pay. What amazing love. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrated his love toward us, and that while we're sinners, here he comes. Christ died for us. The love of God. Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Where every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade. To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure. Mm. If we had to pay for our sins, uh, we would have to suffer uh, forever. You ever thought about that? Can you imagine the billions and billions of people who die and go to hell? And they go to hell in their sin, and now they pay for their sin for, the, for all eternity and all eternity. They, they weren't forgiven. Jesus did not bear their uh, guilt, okay? So they go to hell, and they suffer. And they bear for eternity their sin. But Jesus, the God-man, uh, he comes, he suffered for a season... He was bruised and crushed, Isaiah 53. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. Remember that? 1 Peter 2.24. And as a result of trusting in him by faith, we are forgiven. We repent of our sins. God takes our sin. He removes it, puts it on Christ. Christ dies for us, and he imputes Christ's righteousness to us. Romans 8.1. Now, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Roman Catholics, I believe, they teach that at the Mass, at the sacrifice, the transubstantiationism, that Christ is crucified again in the Mass. That's just not true, by the way. I mean, he died one time for sins, the just for the unjust. And when you take that wine or that wafer and you bless it, it's not that Christ is being crucified again in some magical way. It's just a rep- we're thinking back on what he did. We're doing this in remembrance of Jesus. It's interesting, the more I study theology, the more difficulty I have with Roman Catholicism. It's almost like I didn't, I didn't really understand that they, that they actually believed uh, all, all of that, but they, but they do. All right. Um, oh, look, read this one. Talking about the atoning death, better understanding of the atonement. First uh, Peter 1, 18 and 19, you're going to love this verse. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from men or your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. His sacrificial death for our atonement. You know, we sing a lot of songs, a lot of uh, hymns, a lot of new songs, choruses, and I'm so proud of this fact that the new songwriters or the new contemporary Christian writers as well as the old hymn writers, they both write a lot about and still sing a lot about the blood of Jesus. Have you noticed that? And I say, hallelujah, amen. And uh, I don't know if y'all notice as I'm worshiping the Lord, and you probably don't notice, and that's, that's a good thing because you're worshiping the Lord, that whenever the blood of Jesus is mentioned, my hands go up in worship. I don't know if y'all have ever noticed that or not, but every time we sing about the blood, my hands go up in honor 
in praise and worship of Jesus who died for me on the cross. And sometimes if I'm like going over my notes and we're singing it, then I'll go like that. I mean, I'm just acknowledging it, okay? I'm, I'm just saying, that's my salvation. The precious blood of Christ was shed, and that's my only entrance into heaven, not by any works of righteousness that I've done. Let me give you some benefits of the blood of Jesus. Woo, this is going to set you on fire right here. This is going to bless you, all right? I'm going to go quick, and if you don't get it all, that's okay. There is no quiz. There is no test, uh, but there are uh, lots of notes. Y'all know I'm up to page 102, single space, notes, writing. I don't think I knew what I was doing when I first said, I want to teach systematic theology. This week I thought, what were you thinking? <laughs> I'm like, wow. I mean, I'm on lecture 17. I'm almost done with the lecture on the church. And it's, uh, I'm like, wow. Uh, I'm glad I did it, and I have no regrets. I just had no idea what I was, what I was biting off. Oh, but you're going to like this. You ready? The benefits of the blood. Our consciences are cleansed. Hebrews 9.14. We have bold access to God. Hebrews 10.19. We are continuously cleansed from remaining sin. 1 John 1.7-9. And Revelation 1.5. In fact, I want to read Revelation 1.5. Talking about our sins being cleansed. Watch this. We're about to preach on this verse here in a few weeks. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead... And the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us, stay with me, and how about that? How about that? Washed us from our sins in his own blood. Woo! That's it. That's why he's the crown, the jewel of heaven. I mean, we're worshiping him forever because of who he is and what he did on our behalf. Revelation 12, 11 speaks that we have victory over the evil one through the blood of Jesus. We're rescued and delivered from a sinful lifestyle, 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. The sacrificial spilling of blood of animals in the Old Testament, they all point to the ultimate sacrificial spilling of blood, and that's the Son of God. I'm going to go through some terminology related to the atonement. I think you're going to find this beneficial, especially some of you more cerebral type, that you like these technical words and you want to know what these things mean. And, uh, and then we're going to look at some of the views or theories that are contrary to Scripture when we're talking about the atonement. What is the key word I want you to really know when you talk about the atonement and it starts with a P? Somebody help me. Okay, it's propitiation, all right? On the count of three. You say, I can't say that. My tongue gets tied. You've got to say it. You've got to get it. One, two, three. Propitiation. Propitiation. Wow. Five. Five syllables. Number one is penal substitution. Uh, when you say penal substitution, penal just means penalty. Okay, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. Come on. He washed it white as snow. We deserve death as sinners, but he took our place on the cross, and therefore you have the substitute. Okay, He is our substitute. Penal substitution. By the way, guys, that's... That's... That's big time. I mean, that's what you study when you go to seminary. You get, a, you get a whole chunk of this. This is huge doctrine here. Penal substitutionary theory of the atonement. Number two is vicarious atonement. The word vicar, you might already know this, but it means someone who represents somebody else. A vicar is someone who represents someone else. In the vicarious atonement, Jesus is representing us, our sins on the cross Bridging the gap between holy God and sinful man. Okay, number three is sacrifice. Um, Jesus is referred to as the sacrifice in Hebrews 9.26. He is the sacrifice who puts away our sin. Number four. Number four. Whoop, there it is. I see it, right? Propitiation. And I've given you great verses on it, but let me give you one. 1 John 4.10. I promise you. If you're a Bible teacher, and many of y'all are Bible life teachers, bless you. Raise your hand if you're in here and you're a Bible life teacher. One, mercy. There's a half a dozen, a dozen of you. I promise you, somewhere along the line, if you teach the Bible, one of your students is going to go, What is that? What, what is that word? What, help, help me. You're going to say, Okay, I know what this means. First of all, it's, it's propitiation. And let's read it. It's, and this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He 
is the one who bore the wrath of God in your place. That's what you tell them. Ding, 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 ding. That's the right answer. That is the answer, okay? Helasimos is, is the Greek word. All right, so we speak, we use these words. Uh, penal substitution, vicarious atonement, sacrifice, propitiation. Number five is reconciliation. God redeems, he, I mean, he reconciles us back to himself. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19. And then redemption. And we need to talk about this one because this one is, this is interesting. Mark 10, 45, Jesus says, he gave his life as a ransom for many, okay? He paid the ransom price. Now, here's where it gets a little complicated. To whom did he pay the ransom price? You can't say Satan because that, means, that gives Satan a lot more power and control than he really has. It's not like God and Satan are doing a bargain. No evangelical scholar that I read believes that. So who is he paying? You say, well, he's paying God, God the Father. And Grudem says, no, uh, he, because God the Father is not the one holding us bondage. And you say, well, then you go back to Satan. And you say, no, you can't say it. God and Satan got this bargain thing going on. So here's what Grudem, this is, <laughs> here's how he sums it up. He says, I don't know. <laughs> I love that. He says, I, he says, I struggle with this. He says, I don't know the answer to this. And, and other people that I've studied under, they're honest. They say, this is a little mysterious to us because we can't really figure out to whom the ransom is paid. So here's what he says, and I, I like this. Therefore, at this point, the idea of a ransom payment cannot be pressed in every detail. It is sufficient to note that a price was paid, the death of Christ, and the result was that we were redeemed from bondage. Okay, that's, that's just what you need to focus on. The price was paid. We are redeemed. One of my favorite verses on the atonement is Colossians 1.13. Oh, I love this. And I'm going to read it to you. He has delivered us from the power or the domain of darkness, and he's conveyed, transferred, translated, is the way I memorized it as a young, as a young man, conveyed, translated us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Some, some views on the atonement that are unbiblical, let me give you these. Number one is the ransom to Satan. That's the one we just looked at. Uh, Origen in A.D. 254 uh, came up with this idea that Christ's death paid the ransom for souls to Satan, gives him a lot more power and authority than, than we should. And it fails to bring out the idea of the P word. Okay? If you talk about just the ransom to Satan, then you're, you're missing a whole P word. Okay, that propitiation word. Number two is the moral influence theory of Peter Abelard, and the French theologian died in 1142 during the Middle Ages. He developed this theory that God did not require payment of sin. Okay, this is what he says. He said, God did not require payment of sin. Jesus' death was simply a way of showing God's love uh, to the world. Okay, God's just showing his love to the world through Jesus. He forgives us. Uh, and we're, we're grateful, and we love God. He forgives us. But this theory does not deal with the whole why Jesus died. Not just that God loved us, but that Jesus had to die because we're sinners. Okay? That's, that's where a lot of these break down. They break down at the point of the substitutionary aspect, the vicarious aspect, and especially the propitiationary aspect of Jesus bearing the wrath of God to appease that, that holy wrath. Okay? Number three is called the example theory. So Sinus in uh, A.D. 1604, uh, this is like the moral influence theory in that it denies that God's justice demands payment of sin. They didn't believe that. They didn't believe that God's justice demanded payment of sin. This theory posits that we are to follow Jesus' great example even if it leads us to suffering and die. You see, Jesus, when he died on the cross, he was giving us an example of full abandonment to do God's will, and we're to follow, now stay with me on this, we are to follow his example and earn our salvation. You see, we, we work, we earn, we do what he did, even if we have to die, but the, I think that misses the whole point of him dying. He died so that we don't have to work, that we don't have to earn, that we, we can never earn or work. Okay, now, the moral influence theory teaches how much God loves us, okay? But the example theory teaches us how we should follow Christ and how we should live and therefore earn our salvation. And again, both of these, I think, are erroneous because they take away the real heart of the, the, the atonement.
Number four, the governmental theory, taught by Hugo Grotius in A.D. 1645. The governmental theory goes like this. God is the governor of the universe, and his laws have been broken, and therefore a penalty must be paid. All right, this is the governmental theory. Christ suffered to pay the general penalty of sin, but not the particular sins of people. Are you with me? He just died for all the sins, all the sins of all the world and everybody, but not for sinners individually. This is a dangerous doctrine because if you're not careful, then you have everybody going to heaven because Jesus just died for everybody. You don't have to repent and believe. He just, it's God's the governor. He just, he just does it. But you can easily juxtapose those up against what we had talked about earlier, and you see where they're missing. Okay, here it is, 11 pages. I'm serious. 11 pages he spends that I read a few months ago, and it all has to do with that doctrine of when Jesus died, what does it mean when he went to the spirits in prison? He spends 11 pages on that. And he gives every theory known to man. And in fact, in, in my Bible here, this, this study Bible, it says that there are no less than 90, 90 interpretations of 1 Peter 3.19. When it said, in Christ descend, there it is, by whom also Christ went and he preached to the spirits in prison. And Grudem covers this because it's important in that, oh my, 738. Um... Let me get through this quickly, and we'll have a couple minutes, and we can, uh, we can talk. If you have questions, and we can pray. He, he says this is important. We need to talk about it because there's a lot of misunderstanding. And you are in the context of the atonement because Christ died, and did he, did he die, and did he do something else after he died? In 1 Peter 3.19, it says, And by the Spirit, by whom he went and preached to the spirits in prison. And there are three primary views. I preached on this just a few months ago, but I'm sure you forgot, so let me give you these one more time. Jesus died, and he went to literal hell, and he preached salvation to those spirits in bondage. By the way, I do not believe that, all right? But that is a theory. That when it says 1 Peter 3.19, part of his atoning work is he went and he, he atoned for those spirits in prison and he redeemed them. Number two, by whom he went to the spirits in prison and he preached not a message of salvation but a message of judgment. Okay? And a lot of people believe that. And I'm, I'm kind of in that camp too, kind of. But then the third one is Augustine, Wayne Grudem, Paige Patterson... Some of these heavyweight theologians say, those are not right. Here's what really happened. By whom he went to the spirits of the, in prison of those who sinned. And if you read it in its context, that's what it says. It's about those who sinned during the days of the ark, Noah and the ark. And Augustine and Grudem and Patterson, they, they explain it this way. They say, it was Christ through Noah. He was preaching by the Holy Spirit to those spirits in prison, those who died and they went to hell. And they have a strong argument in 1 Peter 1, I think it's verses 10 and 11, it actually talks about the Spirit of Christ in the prophets preaching. And so they look at it as a much more figurative, metaphorical way. And I'm telling you, I'm, I'm about 50-50 now. I used to be just all, no, he went, literally preached judgment to the spirits in prison. But the more I read those guys, they're becoming a little convincing. Um, <laughs> I preached on this one day. Somebody told Dr. Patterson that I preached on this sermon, and they asked that person, they said, well, what did he say? And they said, uh, well, he gave all these theories. And he said, well, which one does he agree with? And they said, well, he believes that it's more the, the judgment. And he, Dr. Patterson said, okay, he just smiled. You know, he, he disagrees with that. He, he doesn't believe that. He believes that it's more in the prophets and so forth. Okay. Yeah, that's it. I said, I said that. Okay, I'm just having a talk to myself, by the way. Thank you all for being patient. Okay, before we go to the extent of the atonement, uh, I want to stop and just give us a couple minutes, and I do want to honor our time and pray. And we're almost finished, by the way. We almost finished uh, this, this, um, this lesson on the atonement. And uh, what I'll do is I'll wrap it up next time, and, and we'll... Is it still dark outside, or is it just me? Oh, we got the backdrop. That's pretty cool. 
Um, last week when we, uh, when we taught, I don't know if y'all saw, this is pretty funny. I sent this to Terry. But there was a point when I was teaching, the sun came through and it made this big halo over my white head. And at first I was like, that's hilarious. Then I got to look and I thought, that's pretty, that was pretty cool. Look, it was like this, this glow. That's the only time I'm going to glow like an angel is when the sun hits me. But my white hair and that gold, it just, it just looked pretty cool. Somebody took a picture and sent it to me. Uh, whoever you are, bless you, on the internet, you did that. And you sent it and I actually got it. Um, I don't know if you have a question or maybe you just have a statement. Uh, maybe we ought to do it like that. Just what does this mean to you that Christ died for your sins and he paid the price for you so you can go to heaven? Does that, does that do anything to anybody in the room? Do you just feel like you're just going to have a holy hallelujah moment and just say, amen? Anything you want to say, any question, if you say it, I'll repeat it so the people online can, can hear it. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Back in the beginning, when you were given the definition of the propitiation, you mm-hmm. said, I need to say this slowly or repeat it. Yes. You said it one time very fast. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So, if you would break that down into phrases. Okay, I'll, th- Becky, Terry, yeah. right? Um, she's telling me what a great lecturer I am. And. Uh, <laughs> She said how much she's enjoying this class and how slow I go, so I'm just telling you what she just said. And she said, would you be so kind to uh, repeat this? No. She did say, give me this definition, you were too fast, and that, that's usually the, the case. Okay, propitiation is the work of Christ on the cross in which he met the demands of the righteousness of God. Okay, it's the work of Christ on the cross where he meets the requirements or the demands of of God against sin, both satisfying the requirements of God's justice, okay, he satisfied the requirements of God's justice, and he canceled the guilt of man. That's a very good definition, it's a holistic definition. Some theologian must wrote this. Uh, It's on page 1604 if you're interested in my study Bible. Propitiation is the work of Christ on the cross where he meets the demands of the righteousness of God against sin both satisfying the requirements of God's justice and canceling the guilt of man. Man. Yes, sir, bud. Question is, uh, more information on did Christ, by the Spirit, literally go to hell to preach to those in, in prison? You know, it's, it's, it depends on uh, if, if you want to take it more literally or more uh, figuratively. And by the Spirit, some really believe in by the Spirit of Jesus, who he was, he went down into the depths of hell and he preached judgment to those who had been incarcerated, who had, who had sinned. And it was a message not unto salvation because hardly any evangelical believer believes that there's a second chance after death. Okay, So it was more of a, he went, he proclaimed unto judgment, Okay, and then he ascends out, and he ascends um, to the Father, and um, that's that's what a lot of people believe. No, there was no suffering. The suffering was over at the cross, but he went down in there to. Uh, it, it is a mysterious, it is an interesting passage, and but when you read it in its context. It's talking about those who formerly were disobedient in the days of Noah in the building of the ark. And that's why Patterson and those guys have such a textual argument because they're taking it back to its context. Well, what does that mean? And then when they reference 1 Peter 1, it, it composes a powerful uh, argument. So, Yes, sir, Bob. Uh, we're Now, that would be more, uh, and I know which verses you he ascended on high and also led captive into captivity or whatever. It's, and I've actually seen, seen that and not applying to that because it's more referring to us being captive in our sin and Christ comes to us and, and we're in captivity and bondage and he leads us out of that captivity and, and bondage and, and more of that spiritual, figurative way instead of that literal 
getting those spirits in, in prison. Some say, well, that's, but what if that's the Old Testament saints, and then he goes and gets them, and I just, I just don't see that, because I don't see the Old Testament saints in prison in hell, you know. Uh, I see them in the great part of the great cloud of witnesses. I see a Moses. Who were the two on the Mount of Transfiguration? Um, and Elijah? They were in prison. <laughs> there they are, with Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. Misha? Herb said, I went down and said, I told you so. You know, it's a message of proclamation unto judgment. A lot of people believe that. I'm halfway in there. When I get to heaven, it's going to be wonderful. Is it not going to be wonderful? We get all these questions answered. 747, I do want to honor your time. I know some of you have to go to work. I'm going to stick around for a few minutes if you want to ask some more questions, and I'll be happy to talk to you and try to answer some of them, and then we'll, we'll, we'll go. Lord, we do love you very much. Lord, words really escape us when we begin to thank you for what you did for us on the cross. It is the message of all messages. It is the hope of mankind. It is the very crown jewel of Christianity that God so loved the world. He so loved us that he gave his son, Jesus. And so, Lord, we praise you for that. We'll spend an eternity wrapping our minds around that and worshiping you. And now, Lord, having taught us this, having affirmed in our hearts what your word says. Help us, please, God, to go live it. Help us to share it. Help us to tell people, Lord, in season and out of season, that there is a great, awesome, amazing God who loved them so much that Jesus came, born Christmas, died on Good Friday. We celebrate Resurrection Easter. All of it's about him. And help us, Lord, to go and to live that and share that with as many people, Lord, as we possibly can. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. God bless you. Thank you. Dismissed.